This is uh, springtime, and a few days ago we ended our annual winter retreat of three months. And I'm pleased to say we all finished the retreat in one piece, no casualties. Uh, That's not always the case. Sometimes it happens that during retreat time, especially young men get a bit carried away with their enthusiasm and end up trying too hard to get enlightened or something like that. And as noble an aspiration as that might sound, it doesn't always work out very well. Uh, Trying too hard is not helpful. Trying not hard enough, of course, is likewise not helpful. I expect most of us here are familiar with meditation practice and realize the kind of effort it takes to get it right is not straightforward. And and the pressure that we put ourselves under in this spiritual effort is not a straightforward matter. And I thought it would be useful to speak for a while about that this evening. Not just on retreat situation, but also in in daily life. How do we gauge the right amount of pressure? What is the right amount of pressure? Without pressure, uh, nothing happens. Too much pressure, and things can go out of balance, seriously. I was thinking about this theme earlier in the week and remembering perhaps as some of you do in, um, in our biology lessons at school, uh, we talk about the turga pressure in the tree that, that determines whether the leaves are budding and green and healthy or whether they're dying and falling off. The, the right amount of pressure has a big impact. And, or physically, of course, your blood pressure. And at this stage of life, I'm regularly taking my blood pressure to find out whether I'm healthy or not. And blood pressure is too high, that's dangerous. Too low, that's dangerous. Or pressure in the central heating system, which I'm also unfortunately very familiar with. Somehow, for some reason, the pressure in the heating, central heating system in my cootie seems to be going off regularly. Although these days I think we might have resolved it. If we don't get the pressure right, things go out of balance and there are consequences. In the spiritual effort that we make, the consequences are much more serious than than the central heating system. Certainly in my life as a monk I have heard about and a good number of, of spiritual aspirants who end up having psychotic episodes. And where does that come from? I've also witnessed people who don't seem to get very far and don't make much progress in practice. What's going on there? The right amount of pressure is important. And if we're coming from a place of being identified in our heads, which most of us, I would suggest, start out as, we think we are our thoughts. We have good thoughts and we feel pleased with ourselves. We have rubbish thoughts and we feel bad about ourselves. 
And so we think about our spiritual practice and we, we think we should be able to take a certain amount of pressure and, and we think we should be able to sit for a long period of time. And if you're not careful, you can ruin your knees. Many times over the years I've seen monks and ruin their knees and some even end up having meniscectomies it's, uh, with consequences way down the line. And even then when they've had the operation and and the doctor says you've got to rest and, and as soon as they start feeling just a little bit better then they start putting themselves into the cross-legged posture again and too much pressure, too much pressure. Where's that coming from? Why do we push ourselves out of balance? Well, one of the reasons is we're not really aware in our whole being. It's not whole being awareness. You know, we're so identified in our heads and because we think something is the case then we act accordingly and that can be dangerous. So, so as inspiring and energizing as idealism can be, you, know, you read all the books of which there's hundreds, there's thousands of books around in English now about the great Dhamma teachers and you can get so inspired by their example and their austerity and their effort and their realizations and their freedom and their beauty and we then, what happens if we're not careful we get intoxicated by the inspiration inspiration can be wonderful just like sugar <laughs> it can be really nice, a little bit a little bit, but probably we all know too much sugar is not good if we're not being nourished by whole being awareness if we're just lost in our heads if we've lost touch with our hearts and with our guts if we've lost touch with important aspects of our being the, the intelligence in our head is not the only form of intelligence and our hearts have intelligence our guts have intelligence and can teach us a lot and as again many of you will understand the first of the four foundations of mindfulness is mindfulness of the body coming out of our head and listening to what our body can tell us. And so yes, to be inspired, and to feel enthusiastic about purifying the heart, and committing ourselves to spiritual practice, the inspiration can be wonderful. If we're out of balance, if we're identified in our heads, then even that inspiration can take us in the wrong direction and end up putting ourselves under too much pressure. So thinking alone is not a good gauge. We need to feel how we feel. What, are, what does our heart feel about the practice? Like, you know, sometimes you come across a teacher who's utterly convinced that he or she has got the right answers and, and you follow everything the, to, the, to the letter, everything they say, and, and maybe it's not the right practice for you. Just because they're confident doesn't mean to say that it's the right practice for you. He or she might be a downright fundamentalist. There's plenty of Buddhist fundamentalists around as well. So not believing the teacher, not disbelieving the teacher, respectfully listening to the teacher, yeah, that requires a letting go of some of our ideas and our initial inspiration and feeling how we feel. What does our heart say? Do I trust this person? Do I trust this teaching? What does it feel like to trust a teacher? What does it feel like to trust a teacher? Or in our guts, what does it feel like to be afraid? Like, maybe I'm pushing myself too hard. 
that message might be coming through if we're in our bodies, the whole being awareness. We're getting the message saying, you're trying too hard. You're just trying to push yourself way beyond what you're capable of doing. And the fear is a message. Ajahn Chah talking about, you know, if you're, if you're about to run across a motorway, you should be afraid. Cars zooming along, you get run over. And fear is not necessarily always neurotic, and fear can be an aspect of intelligence that protects us from putting ourselves into too much danger. So, being in touch with what our guts is telling us, what our heart is telling us, as well as what's going on in our heads, is a better chance that we won't throw ourselves out of balance and put ourselves under too much pressure better chance we'll be able to assess where are we at in practice and what is our goal in practice that's important in considering this question what is our goal in practice what are we on this journey for well probably most of us if we ask ourselves that question well I'm a Buddhist, I'm committed to this path of practice because I want to be completely free from suffering or I want to realize perfect wisdom and compassion and those are beautiful and noble aspirations and in the beginning they may be very appropriate for generating energy and setting us off in the right direction. However, if we cling to those aspirations, if we're not really present in our own hearts, our own guts, in our well-being awareness, then we can even get intoxicated by the way we relate to the goal of practice. Are we ready for realistically expecting ourselves to be completely free from suffering. Remember the teaching the Buddha gave to the Venerable Mahapajapati, the first bhikkhuni. She asked for a summary of the Buddha's teachings and and, and one of the qualities he pointed out was modesty, dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude. Modesty, contentment, these are these are the foundation of practice. If we, yes, we may aspire for freedom from suffering and realization of selfless wisdom and perfect compassion. However, there's a lot of work that we need to do in the beginning. The last talk I gave, I think, was on the subject of self-aligning and self-transcending. And We may read the Buddha's teachings and be tremendously inspired by the teaching on anatta and emptiness and and want to deconstruct a deluded sense of self and throw ourselves into exercises of meditation and contemplation uh, and take us in that direction. Uh, are we really ready for that? Uh, again, a lot of the Buddha's teachings are about preparing ourselves uh, for this journey. Yes, what the great teachers that we're inspired by talk about, their realization can be a support for us. However, if we are still struggling with eating too much chocolate, (laughs) well, maybe we shouldn't be striving for liberation just yet. Or if we're still caught up, for instance, in 
cynicism. You grow up in an environment where you're surrounded by people who are lost in negative emotions and you can it's almost like you pick up the habit from them. Or if you read too many of the wrong news articles in the newspaper or on the news, you can become so as if you could be your like take on the toxin of the world and think that everybody is on a take. Everybody is caught up in ripping everybody else off. It's a, become cynical. If that's where we're at, then certainly we don't want to be building up too much pressure. If we're not balanced, then building up pressure is going to take us in the wrong direction. So, reflecting on where we're at in our practice and, and exercising whole being awareness and paying attention to our limitations instead of trying to overcome all our limitations. That's an understandable reaction. When we find something that's disagreeable in ourselves, like, for instance, cynicism, you know, a negative disposition. And, and so then you, I've got to overcome this cynicism and we put a lot of effort into cultivating metta bhavana and, and, and conscious caring practice and, and trying really hard to get rid of our cynical state of mind and negative feelings. And, well, it might work, and if it does, great. If it doesn't work, then we need to exercise the humility to come back and actually feel in our hearts, in our guts, in a whole being awareness, the experience of being caught up in negativity. What is it like to always be negative? Instead of idealistically trying to become positive because we have a vision of ourselves as somebody free from cynicism and negativity, instead of trying to get rid of negativity, what might be called for is a patient bearing with the consequences of our unawareness and really feeling what it's like to be lost in negativity or sadness. It's not difficult to accumulate denied sadness throughout life. We all have disappointments and if we don't have the skill or the presence and awareness to really live through the sadness of life and we exercise our compulsive controlling tendencies, which we're all pretty good at, we can deny the sadness and hide it away, store it away in our belly, in our hearts. And and if we've got a backlog of denied sadness and we're busy trying to become positive, have compassion for everybody, again we can be throwing ourselves out of balance. And what's often called for in such situations is to just ease off the effort to try and get rid of our obstructions and humbly, patiently come back and simply feel the sadness. Feel the pain of being lost in in sadness and judgment. The tendency we all have, I suspect, certainly most of us are familiar with, the compulsive judging disorder. 
then is the result of of being identified in with the discriminative intelligence. It's, you know, discriminative intelligence is, can be a great asset in life, can help us enormously, and it's valuable. We don't want to get rid of our discriminative intelligence. We don't want to get rid of our ability for judging situations. However, if we are identified as the judging mind, always taking sides for and against, then putting ourselves under a lot of pressure and trying to develop the jhanas, trying to become enlightened, and we're compulsively judging ourselves for where we're at, there's a very real risk we're going to throw ourselves out of balance even more. So the compulsive judging mind also, you know, I shouldn't be judging so much. Well, that's, what's that? That's judging. I shouldn't be judging the judging. That's judging. So we need another approach. Some of you will have heard me speak about this in the past. It can be very undermining if we don't realize how identified we are with that facility of mind. Of course, in itself, it's an asset. However, if we're clinging to it, if we're lost in it, if we can't stop always judging, can't stop always taking sides, if we can't just open up to feeling what we feel in the moment, like the fear of uncertainty and trust in the power of our precepts to protect us, whole being awareness, and feel a feeling of uncertainty. Instead, we judge it and say, I should be feeling certain. I shouldn't doubt the teacher. I shouldn't doubt the teaching. I shouldn't doubt the Buddha. I shouldn't doubt myself. That is a symptom of the compulsive judging disorder. And it's, there's a very real risk that we're not going to get past that. We're not going to learn what we need to learn to actually be able to let go, to really let go of taking a position for and against ourselves. So long as we're always doing that, then building up more pressure in practice runs the risk of not purifying the heart, rather of taking us in the direction of stress. And again, if we're not exercising whole being awareness, then even when our body, even when our guts, even when our heart is telling us that we're experiencing stress, we ignore it. We say, I should be able to tolerate this. I should be able to do this. Being lost and taking sides all the time throws us out of balance and we definitely don't want to build up too much pressure. And it's something that we need to pay attention to. So habitually lost in negativity, habitually denying and resisting negativity, trying to push past it, doesn't work. Habitually caught up in taking sides, the compulsive judging mind gets in the way. So all of this, paying attention to all of this, is, again, as I'm saying in that last talk, this is all part of, of self-aligning, aligning our sense of being with that which is balanced, that which is true. And that's, if that's where we're at, then that's what we need to be paying attention to. And an awareness of that will determine how much pressure we need to put ourselves under. If we have the overly zealous notion that we shouldn't be having struggles, that we shouldn't feel sad, that we shouldn't feel doubt, we shouldn't feel afraid, 
habitually trying to push past all that, well, then we're not ready for self-transcendence. We need to be slowing down. Maybe less pressure. And there was an example many years ago in, in uh, Wat Ba Pong, Ajahn Chah's monastery, and there was this young young Western monk there, and, and Ajahn Chah walking down the line, he, he, uh, he noticed this monk who was actually very, very skinny, far too skinny, and, and looking utterly miserable, and he only had a very small amount of rice in his bowl, and Ajahn Chah made this gesture to him because I guess this guy couldn't speak Thai. He just made this gesture, this much, you should eat more, you should eat more. Mm. Yeah, the sticky rice that we would eat in the northeast of Thailand, you, you get a ball of the sticky rice and put it in your bowl, and he had a very small ball of rice, and Ajahn Chah said, he should eat more. Well, if you walk outside the dining hall, there's a big sign on there saying, eat little, sleep little, speak little. And so this young monk probably thought that's what he's supposed to be doing, eat little. Actually, he's skinny as a rake, miserable as nobody's business. Caught up in the idealistic notion of practice, the vision of practice. So long as we're lost in the ideas, then we shouldn't put ourselves under too much pressure. And how do we gauge whether we're putting ourselves under too much pressure? Well, it's really helpful to have a community, to be part of a community. I don't have a physical community, like the Virakapontui Buddhist group have a community of meditators, they meet regularly and they can support each other. Or if you live nearby and you visit the monastery regularly and feel part of this community, having a community can help and talk to each other. What does it sound like to you? I'm having this experience, and being able to talk to people. You know, many of us like to think that we can do it on our own. We can't. Yes. We need each other. We need each other's support. And if we can't find an actual community, then you know, there's a chance we can find an online community. But finding people that we can talk to and share our experiences is tremendously important in gauging where we're at, how much pressure we should put ourselves under. So then if we do actually find a nice state of balance and competence and gauge that it is time to put ourselves under pressure, how do we do that? Well, willfulness is one way which we're all familiar with, just deciding we're going to do it and make it happen. That runs the risk of throwing ourselves out of balance again. There are other ways, more organic, more natural ways of putting ourselves under pressure. And one of them is making commitments, aditana in in Pali, building up aditana barami, making a commitment to do something. And again, during the winter retreat or during the rains retreat of the monastery, sometimes you you find monks and novices and anagarikas getting getting carried away with making determinations, making commitments, making vows. I, I'm going to do this practice. I'm going to do that practice. And, and uh, in the beginning, it's understandable. We have so much energy, but it doesn't mean to say that it's balanced. 
again, if I can quote Ajahn Chah, I remember a situation where I think he was a novice at the time, or maybe he was a young monk, a newly ordained monk, and he couldn't speak Thai at the time. And these days he's a very competent Thai speaker, but in those days he, he couldn't speak Thai, and so I was translating for him, talking to Ajahn Chah, and, and he explaining to Ajahn Chah how he's going to do these various practices during the range retreat, you know, the one bowl eater's practice, and the the three robe wearers' practice, and the, I don't know, the sitter's practice, whatever, all these different ascetic practices, and I forget what they were now. But anyway, Ajahn Chah listened to him and, and um, wisely and compassionately said, well, he said, I think actually, in your case, just make one commitment, that is, commit to keep practicing whatever happens. Which, probably to this young fellow, didn't sound as dramatic and as impressive. However, I, I trust Ajahn Chah's judgment, the modesty and the wisdom of that, making too many, too extreme commitments that we don't have the ability to keep will throw us out of balance again. So, starting with modesty, even if it's something like committing to increase your exercise routine, so if you're only exercising once a week, you're going to the gym once a week, well, maybe you can just commit, no, I'm going to do two days, I'm going to do exercises two days, something that you know you can keep and then build up the the confidence, the competence to stick by uh, commitments, our commitments. The values of the casual culture that we live in, people say all sorts of things and don't follow them through. It's sadly very normal for people to say things and not follow them through. It's like you know, New Year's Day, beginning of the year, people regularly making jokes about how they broke their determination. It's actually not a joking matter. If you can't say something and see it through, then that's a sign of weakness. That's a sign of serious incompetence. We need to know that if we say we're going to do something, we're going to see it through. So not being overly idealistic, gradually build it up. When I was a young monk, I remember during the range retreat, I I made this determination to sweep my kuti out every day. It's not a big deal. I could do that. (laughs) Anybody could do that. However, there were times when I remember I was already in bed and I hadn't done it. And I realized, oops, I didn't sweep my kuti out. So I got up and swept it out. It didn't actually really need sweeping, but because I determined it, I did it. And little by little, with such exercises, we build up the skill, we build up the spiritual muscle, the spiritual competence, that if we say we're going to do something, we can see it through. And then we can start to take on serious determinations, make serious commitments, that are going to really frustrate us. And that's frustration is one of the ways of putting ourselves under pressure. And that's, of course, I'm sure as many of you would appreciate, that's what a big part of what's behind people doing this, becoming a monk, becoming a nun. uh, You you don't get your own way in in this, this energy that's locked into my way enslaved by my preferences shows itself the image the Buddha gave of purifying gold, how do you purify gold? you turn the heat up and then the dross comes to the surface how do you purify the heart? you frustrate the preferences when I don't get what I want then the energy shows that I want like the monastery routine of sitting quietly before the meal and 
you're sitting there and you can smell the food and you're really hungry and you want to eat and then the Ajahn's just sitting there rabbiting on to the visitors and talking about this and talking about that and cracking jokes and being boring and I just want to eat, I just want to eat now. What is that? I mean, it's not the end of the earth that you can't eat immediately, but it might feel like it. Or smoking cigarettes, if you've got a habit of smoking cigarettes. I want a cigarette now. If I don't have a cigarette, I'm going to die. Well, it's highly unlikely. I mean, I used to smoke cigarettes when I was a young monk and felt very bad about it. And I made a determination that whenever I wanted to smoke a cigarette, I'd have to wait 10 minutes. I committed to it. Whenever I want a cigarette, I'm going to have to wait 10 minutes. And then one day, 20 minutes have passed before I remembered that I wanted a cigarette. I said, oh, wow, that is amazing. That, that desire for a cigarette is so pathetic, <laughs> so puny, that I could forget about it in 10 minutes. I could forget about it. How pathetic. Making commitments are really helpful. If we're not willing to commit, then we're not going to develop. So when the time arrives where we are balanced enough and strong enough and stable enough to put ourselves under pressure, then commitment is a good way to do it. So thank you very much for hearing for your attention.